So there's a bit where she gives Sheridan like the fleet of white stars and they make out on the screen. It's like that's that's a weird moment. Like, how do I seduce this human? I'm going to get him a fleet of warships. Humans love warships. Yeah, there's a, that happens a little bit, like basically throughout their romance. Hello, you're listening to Social Science Talks Science Fiction, a podcast in which social scientists, philosophers, researchers, and theorists discuss the themes and works of science fiction. This podcast is recorded in the International Politics Building at Aberystwyth University and is available free under a Creative Commons license. We hope you enjoy the programme. It's the 25th anniversary of Babylon 5 and we decided to do an episode on it. J. Michael Straczynski once said that in other science fiction series, humans are at the top of the food chain. In Babylon 5, they're in the bottom third. His five-season epic takes us on a journey where humans and other races are confronted with two questions from the higher races, the Vorlon and the Shadow. Those questions are, who are you, and what do you want? I'm Alex Hoseason, Happy New Year, and who are you? John Wood. And what do you want? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Matthew Campbell. Okay, so, I mean, there's a bit of a lie in the intro, right? I mean, we've been intending to do this for ages. And then we happen to see, oh look, it's the 25th anniversary. Uh, yeah, yeah. But I mean, it's difficult though, isn't it? Because we're like, oh, let's do a Babylon 5 episode, and then Andre went away. <laughs> and then we were like, oh, you know, we don't have enough people. We should convince people to watch Babylon 5. Oh, wait, there's 110 hours of this stuff. Not Plus, including Crusades. Not, not including spin-offs and films. Like, so we're, there's only three of us precisely because there's only three of us that have watched it. Um, I mean, Matt, you've actually, over the last, what, month or two, dragged your way through the entire thing. Um, how, how does it hold up? So, in terms of 90s sci-fi, as a rule, some of them hold up really well and others don't hold up at all. I think Bat 5 holds up pretty well, apart from some of the CGI and the hairstyles. Um, in terms of a single arc, uh, I'm more of a fan of whole planned arcs when you can see them not working on shows that don't have them. So you look at, say, Lost, a show with you know the machinations of more powerful beings and allegedly a whole what's going on, their complete lack of an overall plot arc doesn't work. You can tell they're just improvising season to season. Whereas Bab 5 allows them to do not only the obvious foreshadowing, but I think it's just better paced than most science fiction shows. Uh, Until the fifth series. Until the fifth series. There's a lot of good stuff in the fifth series, but obviously because it was tacked on, because they didn't know they were going to get it initially. But Um, I mean, in, in some ways the fifth series highlights what it could have been like if it hadn't been written in advance or, yeah, or whatever else, right? I mean, there's this really interesting transition also between kind of episodic procedural stuff, and then by the time you've got season... I've been watching a kind of list of episodes called Babylon 5 Condensed, I think it's on Den of Geek or something, and by the time they got to the fourth season, they were like, yeah, you have to watch the whole thing. Luckily, you're probably going to want to yeah. at this point. I mean, certainly, I know a lot of people don't like season one. I really enjoyed much of it. But the telling thing in season one is that most episodes have two plot lines in any given episode, one of which is long-term plot, yeah. and one of which is mystery of the week. Um, and it's arguably the most formulaic of the series, but I think that balance works really well, whereas once you're into season three and four, it's plot, 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 plot. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I mean, I was, I was thinking about this thematically, though, right? And so you basically have, like, Babylon 5 is Space UN, Right. Except it's also a place where trade happens and all the rest of it because it's a space station. So, and and that is summarised for you at the beginning of absolutely every episode, right? And and 
one of the great things about the series is the introduction changes as the plot changes, right? But you know, you get that you, you get that introduction repeated to you like it was our last best hope for peace and all that kind of thing. And theme wise, I think actually the first series works quite well because it shows you the dream, hmm. right? It shows you space United Nations working, right? Before it all starts to fall apart because of whatever, right? So I mean, in some ways, I think while when I sat down to watch this again, I didn't watch it all again. Um, I, did, I only get, managed to get through back to the end of season three. While, when I sat down to watch it again, I thought, oh, crap, I've got to watch season one again. And I was like, well, actually, I can see this. I mean, the other thing about writing in advance is you realise just how many tells there are mm. all the way through. Um, and I mean, it's been five years since I've watched the whole thing. Um, but even so, I, I'm not going to say I enjoyed it more the second time, but it, it certainly felt richer mm. um, than, than it did the first time well, around. Certainly I hadn't watched it since its original run on British TV, and I was very young at the time. Mm. And so I was in it for, you know, the, the space lasers and the explosions, which there was plenty of, because, you know, that's how sci-fi works. Um, but this time around I got more of the in-depth stuff, and that was really... It's probably deeper than... Deep Space Nine comes close, and they're the obvious two you compare to each other, but as far as in-depth sci-fis go, there's really not much of a parallel to that point. Yeah. Or maybe Battlestar Galactica, the remake. Yeah, the remake. I mean, I was I was wondering this. I mean, I watched it when I was a bit older, like, a, and, you know, just 25 or whatever, so, you know, I, I got what was going on a lot more than I would have if I watched it when I was a kid. And also, I had the luxury of being able to sit through and work through it rather than having to be home and watch it and missing episodes and things. Um, I mean, how did that... How did it work for you as a show? Because, I mean, when I, when I watched it, I was like, the, as far as, like, long-term big vision science fiction goes, this is as good as science fiction television gets, right? I mean, did you have those memories of it, or is, it, is that a kind of post-hoc thing? I had memories of it being very good, um... Certainly design-wise, I like the way all the... Because I was also one of those kids who watched the, the reruns of old Doctor Who with its cheap sets, its rubber aliens. And so I remember that fight looking very good by comparison. But in terms of the quality of storytelling, I was completely unaware in that I just, you know... <laughs> Shadows of the bad guys, yeah. Well, the one big problem with the time it came out is it, I think it's in fact better to watch now when you can watch the entire thing on DVD or stream it. Because if you missed any of the plot-critical episodes in the original run, then you started to lose your, your, your place, your understanding of the whole story. And especially with, as I remember, it was on a Sunday night, so you, didn't know, you weren't always there to, uh, to watch it. I think by the third or fourth season, when every episode became plot-critical, it became very hard to um, keep up with. And like another show which relied heavily on arcs, Farscape, I think that's why a lot of people sort of switched off it during his run. That's why it was so close to cancellation by season four. Well, Batfire's remarkably generous in that front, in that there's a bit of clunky dialogue from time to time when the characters will repeat something they both know to make sure you picked up on it. Did you watch it the first time around? Yeah, I was, um, ooh, was I? I was about between the ages of about seven and twelve when it first came on. I, 
I loved it then, but I didn't necessarily understand many of the philosophical implications of the show. Yeah, I mean, so the um, uh, another podcast about RPGs and stuff, System Mastery, did they review old RPGs, and one of the ones they did recently was the Babylon Project, right? Who's apparently <laughs> the full title is something like the Babylon Project, the role-playing game based on the show Babylon Five by J. Michael Straczynski and owned by Warner Brothers or something. Um, but I mean, that's a it, it's a good podcast actually. Um, but the they they did a review of it and they were saying that their memory of it was a lot more limited in the sense that it, it's kind of a strange thing to ask people to watch because what do you sell at them based mm-hmm. on right? Do you sell at them based on the overarching plot arc? Well, to be honest, it's a little bit prophecy heavy. You know, there's quite a lot of like pseudo religious stuff going on, and it all comes off sounding a bit narratively too tidy. Or do you sell it on the interesting characters and they get to season one and all the characters are really annoying. You know, it, it, it's quite a difficult thing to ask someone yeah. to watch, right? And especially when you, what you're encouraging is time investment, right? A so, big time so with a lot of shows, you can say, hey, let's watch a few episodes of this. And like, you can do that with, say, Cowboy Bebop. There's only ever one series. If you don't like it after five episodes, that's fine. Whereas with Bad Five, you think someone can be like, 15 hours in, it's like, oh, no, you, you haven't seen all of season one yet. You know? Right. I mean, but even even its competitors, right, like even Star Trek, you know, like, yeah. oh, here's a really good episode of Star Trek, right? You can't say that about any individual episode of... of Probably not, no. Not, I mean, within certain... There are some episodes which are genuinely very good standalone mm. things, but the... Um, by the time you're getting plot-critical episodes so so, you know, so readily... It's difficult to do that, right? Like, oh, there's this amazing, you know, the the Battle of Mars or whatever, you know, which is was quite a cool space battle, right? But you, you know, it's completely irrelevant to anyone that hasn't watched the whole arc. Um, so there we go. We bitched enough about Babylon Five being difficult to watch. I mean, you know, watch, watching it again. What, what did you pull out? I mean, I liked its understanding that peace was flawed. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of utopian sci-fi. There's a lot of um, stories in which there's a war, and then everyone's like, oh, no, we've learnt our lesson now, violence is bad. And we like to think that's how peace works in our world, but of course it's not. And the way peace works in Babylon 5 is that everyone is reluctantly taking part because they only marginally think it's better than the alternative. Hmm. And the people who are happily sitting in this chamber detest each other sometimes, and yet they both kind of believe in the project enough to bother staying in the room most of the time. And you can compare this to I mean, the Northern Ireland Assembly would be the ultimate example of this. There's a lot of deeply unresolved tensions and yet, temporarily at least everyone agrees that this is the best solution we've got. Yeah, I mean, there's some interesting points at which, actually, the main characters who, like, in a and this is one thing that seems to rub people up the wrong way, suddenly become these kind of cosmically important in some cases, people. Um... Or like, kind of, they start operating on a far wider stage than they were at the beginning of the series. I mean, but they have to engage in lies and trickery to to maintain the peace, right? Like after the end of the Shadow War, you know, they say, well, you know, we've got this fleet of incredibly powerful, technical, you know, um, advanced warships, and we're going to use it to keep everyone safe. Well, of course, everyone says, well, no, you know, that's you know, crossing the Rubicon, right? You can't bring your army into our space just because. You know, and so effectively they have to trick people, right? Um, so, 
I think it also plays tragedy quite heavily, right? I mean, the, the entire uh, Centauri uh, arc, um, you know, it's kind of space pressure-style tragedy um, played quite heavily at some points. And it's also foreshadowed really heavily. I mean, you, yeah. you get a lot of kind of flash-forwards to the Emperor dying and all that kind of stuff. Um, and the hair. The hair. The hair. You said hair, I said shirts. Maybe it's because I don't have many hair. Well, I mean, there's a lot of of 90s hair in it, but the Centauri sort of have the... There's meant to be this thing going on where the the bigger the hair crash, the more important you are. Mm. But then some actors just don't have it. Like the Um, Emperor. Yeah. Oh, but But, he doesn't need it. Well, there's the Prince who has a very small one as well, but apparently the bigger problem was that there weren't many actresses willing to shave their heads to play a Centauri female. Um, and so one of the bigger problems of the, the makeup department wasn't actually making a Drazi or a Narn or whatever, it was making a bald cap that worked in terms of having a ponytail and then some jewellery around it. Mm-hmm. What did you get out of it, John? Um, well, continuing on from your theme, um, I'd say the main thing which I found fascinating is how much of peace in in one conflict leads to, ah, now we can immediately retool for the next stage of somebody else's... Co- it's, it's like, there is no, you know, universal peace. There is a small soap bubble of peace which is constantly surrounded by the threat of war under almost all circumstances during the series. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I thought it did quite a good job of... There's definitely certain characters that are played as victims of that, right? As victims of circumstance. And nearly all the characters go through an arc where there is literally nothing they can do apart from try and steer it into a less bad... You know, it, the, um, the Centauri invasion of the, the Narn planet in Jakar becomes that character. Londo, um, Londo's character becomes the victim of, of, of that. I mean, even Delenn through flashback is revealed to have chosen the violence as a solution and then regretted it. Right, and and even even relatively speaking, kind of minor characters who provide a lot of the kind of plot arc for the series to kind of feed on, like Lita Alexander, you know, is is, is revealed as someone who kind of as a, as a tragic figure, as, as you know, as as kind of a telepath. Um, so, I mean, I think that was definitely kind of. One of one of the things that one of the things that it played quite well. So do we want to talk about the telepaths and cycle <laughs> space fascism guys? So yeah, I mean the the the, the Nazi parallel. There's there's a lot of sci-fi in which the Nazi parallel is really overtly clear, and I'm never sure if um, it's overplayed because there are of course those people who don't realise, like say Starship Troopers is a satire. Apparently that wasn't Nazi enough for them to realise. So I wonder if the cycle while kind of almost silly at times in their black leather gloves and their mincing uniforms, whether that's actually appropriate for what they're trying to show. Do you... A lot of the series is quite camp. That's true, yeah. I mean, I don't know, is it just that it just looks that way now? I mean... No, I didn't think the costumes have dated all that much at all, actually. Really? Yeah. Given that they just look like, you know, space office wear. Mm. Right. They, they, they've not got, like, the rubber jumpsuit look of... Well, I mean, in some ways it's kind of hard to think that they weren't thinking about it, right? Like, mm. I mean, particularly with the Nightwatch. 
and like, oh, by the way, you just wear this black armband, right? Like and report on your neighbours. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, maybe you're right that it's it's a little bit on the nose. But it's, it is on the nose. But even characters like Bester, the meme representative of the Psycore, still gets some well, sympathetic moments. You never get to the point where you like him, but. Walter Koenig's character is still quite nuanced in ways because of how he he, sort of, he becomes a co-belligerent, I suppose, with the the cast or the uh, the Babylon Five station at times, while still having his own agenda. I mean, I think that's that's the general strength of the arc in that when you start off, Malari represents the Centauri and Chikari is the Narn and Besta is the Cycle. And as we dig down and learn more about these organisations, you also learn more about the person and how they don't represent them in that way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think a lot of the telepath stuff is followed up on elsewhere, though, isn't it? Like, a lot of the later stuff. Because there's all the telepath war and all that. Well, that's mentioned, but in Crusade, it just goes, like, oh, and there was a telepath crisis, and now there's a memorial, and the first officer of this super ship is a telepath, and that's about it. Mm-hmm. And they never quite discuss what happened... Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I mean, maybe we're confusing the two slightly, though, right? I mean, you know, early on in the series, the kind of oppressive arm of the state is the cycle, yeah. right? But later on, that becomes a lot more complex. And, I mean, the Earth kind of defense force stuff, the Night Watch and stuff, I mean, that's a lot more obviously Nazi symbolism, right? Mm-hmm. Um,. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure whether the cycle play into that in the same way. I think there's more to it. There's more to them than just the nasty symbolism. They certainly engage in that. Yeah. And there's a lot of Orwell going on as well. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's called the Ministry of Peace. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean... But I, I don't know whether it's just that that... is trying to do too many things. Yeah. You know, as a, as a kind of organisation in the story and whatever else. You know, because then the resistance kind of becomes about telepaths but also kind of not and like you know that that kind of stuff on the fringes kind of gets a little bit confused well this is one point which I was thinking about uh, given the time when the show was on and the, the characters involved is was some of the telepath stuff taken out because of Talia Winter's relationship with uh, uh, Ivanova and the uh, people, bisexual aspect. It does. That. It apparently appears as if it does in the edit, as if there's an edited out kiss. But the makers of the show stated that no, they did not edit that out, and that it was meant to be subtext that adults could pick up on and everyone else would just ignore. Hmm. Um, but no, I thought that too. On the it was it was just the way that they they guillotined yes. that plot arc pretty um, quickly. I thought that too, but uh, apparently not. Okay, because I mean, there's. Because, I mean, obviously Talia's role in this show is a lot more attached to the crew than Lee yeah. Alexander is, right? So, is it, I mean, it does seem like that's a kind of dropped plot arc a little bit. You know, they kind of reference it happening and, you know, they say, oh, you know, there's going to be a, a war between telepaths and normals or, or whatever else. But then the kind of, um, you know, the superpower telepaths because um, Talia gets the gift from Jason, yeah. right? She becomes telekinetic or whatever. Um, and, and, and Lita... <clears throat> Lita gets a ball on 
Yeah, she gets a ball on stuff. She's made into a weapon, right? Yeah, effectively. Um, that that's yeah. I mean, Natalia went to the storyline. Obviously, gets dropped when she leaves um, quite early on. They basically just don't mention her again, right? Well, they they mention that she's been dissected, and that's it, right? Oh, uh, right, yeah. So, to ride an old hobby horse, then, I mean, what about the technology? And um, I like how it's not all hand-waved. So there's the, like many sci-fis, I mean, Mass Effect, the obvious parallel here, that a lot of your technology comes from the ancient ones, and... You could ignore that, but Babylon 5 doesn't, and it plays into the whole, well, actually, we're kind of dependent on this idea of the ancient ones. But also, I like how humans are this amazingly primitive species. It's like, we don't have artificial gravity, so we're just going to spin our spaceships around to generate gravity. Or the star theory, where they've actually thought about, well, how would a 3D, three-dimensional space combat work, right? Mm-hmm. There's no gravity, so why isn't our... Why, do we, why does everyone have a fighter design like a fighter plane? Uh, and I like that they didn't hand wave that. And they also talked about the PPGs, so what sort of hu- sidearm would you have in a pressurised space station? Mm-hmm. Which was an interesting idea, but then they never quite explain how the laser pistols work. And there's one, there's one point where they say they're made of superheated whatever it is, and there's one bit where they're shooting the pistols in the methane environment that some yeah. of the aliens breathe, breathe. in. Yeah. And it's like, you've got pressurised oxygen tanks and methane there, and you're like, bang, bang, bang. How do these work? Actually, I mean, the pressurised methane thing, I mean, that's a really cool detail. Yeah. Like, I love that. The fact that there's different habitats for... Uh, do you ever play Startopia? No. Okay, well, that was like a space station building game where you had to put in different habitats for different different aliens. And, I mean, we talk, we talk about this a lot, but it, it kind of provides the detail in all the right places, right? Um... The, I, I, I really liked it when, uh, quite early on in the thing... They talk about how when humans first got to space, the Centauri are the first species that they encounter. And the Centauri basically run this massive con, saying that they're like their long-lost cousins from, you know, whatever, and all this kind of thing. I mean, it, there's enough history there for, yeah. it to, for it to build up in, in quite a satisfying way. And what you're saying about the technology transfers, it's like... Humans bought most of their advanced technology from the Narns, who, yeah. who were gun-running. Because they will sell to anyone. Yeah, yeah. And that's something that a lot of the, the feature-length movie things they did afterwards don't quite work, but in the beginning, the, which is pretty much the last thing one should watch, despite its title, is one of the best, and it introduces the Narn really well, and the Jakar is already there. With, okay. his, with his smile on his face and his big ba- batch of weapons. Because, mm-hmm. of course, no, the Centauri will not help you, but will happily take hard currency. Yeah, I mean, the what about the design of the alien ships and stuff? I mean, you've got some quite quite strange... <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I never quite figured out why the Mimbari ships had those big crests. And I think they must be fish-like. I think yeah. that's the image they're going for, sort of naturalistic look. It just looks yeah. kind of like a, a man of war jellyfish without the tentacles. Yeah, and their fighters look like rays, almost. Um, no, wait, their fighters are triangle. I'm not really sure what their fighters are going for. Compared to the Vorlogs, they look very... Um, they look like cephalopods, right? They have tentacles. Yeah. Literally, that grow out from the ships. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, I can never work out which... Because you always see like, the flying saucer one, and there's the sort of upright, greyish-brown one. I never work out which species are meant to be which in those situations. Yeah, I mean... I think a lot of the ships are quite thematically heavy-handed, yeah. like the shadow one, the one that fades in. It looks a bit like a spider. And, I mean, 
The funny thing is, I think if we're going to say that Babylon 5 doesn't hand wave much of its technology away, like we talked about this last episode where I said that what bothered me wasn't necessarily that shows hand wave stuff away, it's that they hand wave the wrong stuff away. And so you end up with programs like Star Trek, which, you know, rightly or wrongly go into an immense amount of technical detail filled up with jargon and stuff. Yeah. Babylon 5 doesn't even pretend to do that, right? There's a few convenient bits, but it, there's, there's, it still has enough detail in the right places yeah. for it to be fairly believable. I mean, Star Trek will tell us that there's a, a warp core of a bark, whatever it is, running at however many thousand millicoprons and hmm. whatever crystals, and Babylon 5 just has a reactor. And that's it, we're never told anymore. Yeah, although I wonder whether the Star Trek thing is because it was so successful, like the fans wanted to know that stuff. That's true. Um, I mean, certainly it was just like, oh no, something's blown up and Scotty would yell it, and then it all got fed in, in more detail later. But. Mm-hmm. Well, there, there was the um, the guide to Babylon 5, which was sort of like the, the writer's Bible and expanded on, and it included so much completely useless detail, like what, which species use which currencies and rough exchange rates. So, and I had this when I was about 13 or 14. It's been I mean, many years since I read it. That's useful from a writing point of view, so that you don't end up messing up. So we know that the Minbari can go into the methane breather's atmosphere area without a gas mask. You don't want to then, in a later episode, have a Minbari wearing a gas mask for no apparent reason. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think that's useful for the writers, but that doesn't need to infect all your writing and be omnipresent. Yeah, I mean, detail obsession is. I don't know. The Pac Maru don't even get a name until like season three. They're just the carrion eaters. Oh, there is there is quite a lot of like background characters that are quite strange looking, and you just never see them again, right? And yeah, things like that. And there's also quite a lot of one-off characters that will turn up, and it won't give any real background. Well, there's, that, there's the insectoid gangster who's apparently running most of the black market on the station, and you see him twice in season one, and then <laughs> never gets mentioned again. Yeah, I mean, I, I, think, I think the other thing is it tends to bring in the detail when it's there to accentuate the differences. Yeah. Right? So, like, you know, it mentions, oh, by the way, Kosh breathes methane, or, you know, whatever. Um, Although I'm never entirely sure why that's necessary, given his encounter suit. He doesn't need it elsewhere. Well, yes, I mean, they first go into his quarters, he's not in the encounter suit, right? R- oh, right. He does get out of it occasionally. Yeah. Um, and, but, like, things like, um, you know, you, you realise for ages that um, there's, there's no gravity in, in, in Battle of Five because it's spinning. Um, and it has... Uh, is one of my favourite things about the series is it's got the cool fighter launch sequence that yeah. uses the, sh- uses the station's fighter, yeah. rotation to launch the fighters, um, which is a cool touch. But, um, you know, the star theories don't have gravity and stuff. And then later on, when Sheridan gets onto the white star, he's like, oh, it's got artificial gravity. And they're like, yeah, we've had it for ages. <laughs> um, you know, so it kind of leaps out as, a, as an important detail when they do use it. Yeah. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I mean... So, what, what about if we jump up to the big scale, then? Um, you know, Andre, one of the guys that did our first podcast with us but moved back to Portugal, um, said that you know the thing he liked about Babylon 5 was it was this kind of epic vision. I mean, he called it Hegel in space, but, you know, let's not go that far. But, um, I mean, is that something that... Do you, do you think there's enough in Babylon 5 to stand up without that epic... Do you think the world's interesting enough and everything else? Or do you think that actually it needs it? 
I think it is interesting enough. I'd have. I mean, it wouldn't have been as good, but there's enough on the station with all the different species to do a different thing of the week. Mm. Um, the epic arc is what makes it better than most science fiction settings. The, the, the station and its population and its underclass and its, its diplomats and its warriors are all interesting enough that you could just do that for an extended period of time. Well, I, I completely agree, but you, you see where sort of that goes. It goes to the remake of uh, Battlestar Galactica's, mm. what, first two seasons? Mm. And yeah, you can keep it going for a while, but I think it needs that extra, I don't know, transcendal element of the, the epic scale to... I mean, because that, that's what really I, I remember, is, is the war between light and dark and the nature of good and evil in Babylon 5. Whereas I just remember the remake of Battlestar Galactica as very good and very gritty, but it doesn't have that overarching thing I, I really care about. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about it when I was watching it, because what I was wondering... So, my least favourite thing about um, about the way the kind of larger arc is conducted is that it does come full circle and it ties up too many of its own knots. And I was wondering whether it was possible to tell that story in a kind of compelling way that didn't require... And, and you can almost kind of see, like, it relies on basically two episodes where time travel happens, um, you know, to set up the entire thing. And, and you know, all of a sudden, the, the leader of the station from the first episode, from the first season becomes, you know, the kind of founder of the Mimbari, Repu- you know, uh, Mimbari Republic or whatever. And, you know, there's too, it's too tidy in some I ways. think you can, I mean, you, you can go on your, you know, the fact that you didn't like prophecy and time travel around in a second, but I think that there's enough plot hooks left at the end to remind us all that this is an ongoing universe. So there's that shot of the new captain, the new ambassadors. We're told there's going to be a telepath war, we'll yeah, never see it. Yeah. We never find out what happens to the drug keeper that's given to Sheridan's son. Okay, because I was asking John about that earlier. Uh, it's Jamie in his commentaries because I watched the commentary. You're going to have to mention it. Um, yeah. So there's a there's a monster which is inside a capsule which is never revealed. And in the very final episode you went to watch, which is the let's look into the future and see what people in the future think of Babylon Five. Um, all that is mentioned is that well, Sheridan never recovered from the incident with his son. Right. Uh, Jamie Straczynski has confirmed that this was the monster inside the chalice. But um, you would never, he's never going to tell people what happened, because that's not the point in there being a mystery. Yeah, yeah. But no, I, I think the show leaves enough loose ends to feel like a real universe. But you, well, know, I, you watched the condensed version, so you've got a lot of prophecy. No, I, I did. And I noticed that, actually, when I was watching it. I was like, hang on a second, because I didn't get a lot of that procedural stuff. Um, I mean, early on, when you've got the dual plotline thing going on, there was still plenty of it, you know, the bit with Michael Ironside and all that kind of stuff, but... I think this, the thing, maybe it's not the overall series which runs in, you know, it, it does leave things open, but what happens is, because in the fourth series, and you spend so much time with a small selection of characters, who all then become tied up in this drama and end up time travelling or, you know, living forever, you know, or whatever, then actually season five, and I know they didn't know they were going to get it or whatever, it tries to drag things down to earth so quickly that it feels like a, a different series in some ways. Season 5 does have pacing problems because it's... But you know, it, it's a bit like Spooks and, dare I say it, Saved by the Bell, 
where they have a kind of the series goes on so long that they have to start replacing characters mm. and they replace too many and it doesn't work anymore um, now I think it, it still does kind of work in Batman 5 but in some ways the main arc is tied up I think enough of your characters are still around, so I actually think Zack's more interesting character than Garibaldi. Uh, but even away from personal preference, I think that Tracy Scott does a good enough job with Elizabeth Lockley hmm. to... First of all, a lot of the, the episodes we get from her are her trying to fit into a system that's been around for a while. But equally, like Sheridan's still around and Delenn's still around, and this also fixes one of my head scratches from the first few seasons, which is, how is the commanding officer of this space station also Earth's chief, chief diplomat on this station. Yeah. How is that? Surely those are both full-time jobs. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, if, if, so say for instance, right, at the end of the fifth series, right, if, if you haven't been spoiled at this point, then prepare, right? Delenn is getting up every morning and watching the sunset, right? Sheridan has gone off into the stars with the old ones, right? You know, so and so on, right? Um, Londo's dead, Jakar's dead, like, would you have watched season six? I think I'd want a reason to watch season six. Hmm. So, I mean, in theory, so let's talk about how Crusade wasn't actually as good as it should have been. Um, I love Gary Cole, but Crusade just wasn't great. The, the idea is like, pitch me that plot hook. Let's just say that, okay, the, let's say Crusade is season six. That plot hook of there's this disease and you've got to travel all these wiped out civilizations to try and find a cure. Okay, I'd watch that as an overarching plot. Well, I think the... In some ways, this is maybe giving it more credit for being circular than than I should, but the kind of thing that jumps out of you as the potential for season six is what happened in season one, right? Hmm. You're back to space UN and the promise of building a new world and all that kind of stuff, right? Well, well the problem is they succeed. Right, so the Interstellar Alliance works and Babylon 5 is boring and shut down. <laughs> <laughs> but you still have interesting... Things which could develop. I mean, you've got Veer becoming mm-hmm. Emperor. The Spoilers. The Draken never resolved. The Draken never resolved. Um, how does Jakar's religious revival proceed? I mean, is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? And I, I, I love that. This is this is a slight uh, drop in, but so the 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 Nan, when they're copying a religious text, copy every single thing they can about it. Mm-hmm. Um, in order to make sure they've got it all right, which is fantastic. And then, of course, they copy the, they copy the coffee stain that Garibaldi leaves on the book because they consider it to be part of the text. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the... Did I, did I get too much prophecy when I watched it? I don't think so. I mean, I, there's part of me which also says, you know, okay, on the podcast we try and pick out the big themes and all the rest of it, right? There's part of me that says, like, there's part, parts of this which is just a genuinely good story. Yeah. Right? And when I watched it the first time, and um, Sheridan goes off to to die or go off into into the stars or whatever, you know, I, I wound up a little bit. You know, I'd spent a lot of time with these characters, right? And I liked the way it finished, right? Um, I think maybe at least part of it's retrospective when you're thinking, okay, well, this is an easy write-in, or, you know, this is... Although they did put quite a lot of... They, I think, the pro- I think my problem with it is they put quite a lot of effort into the time travel stuff. And that makes me think that they really thought it would work. And I just don't think it does. I think one of the other reasons we're spotting prophecy so strongly is that 
Uh, well, this is a rewatch for all of us. Yeah. And so um, we know what's going to happen. We know every time they say the word shadow, that's probably going to mean something. And mm-hmm. we spot every single reference and foreshadow and um, prophecy there could be. Whereas if you're actually just watching this as a viewer, I don't think it's quite as prominent as it might be. Yeah, and you're more likely to get tied up in procedural stuff. I mean, it's not shy to kill off characters or make them disappear or... Yeah. I mean, even in the case of things like Talia Winters, they just disappear and no one talks about them again. Like, you know, I, I, I think... I mean, you also have the fairly consistent Netflix problem of, like, you know, I've watched this really, really quickly. Yeah. Um... Which is obviously the opposite of the problem of I missed an episode and I can't understand what's going on. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I think I, I certainly admired what he was trying to do when I was watching the watching the thing. And you also get the tingles, right? You know, at some point, yeah. Kosh comes along and says, "You know, I'll teach you to fight legends," right, and all that stuff. I mean, but what about the kind of more slightly like grounded politics bit? the kind of day-to-day stuff earlier on and things like that. You know, so you, you have the thing with the, you know, we want to see Earth's, what is it, like culture and contribution yeah. and stuff, and they line up all the religious leaders and say, well, we don't have one religion. I, I actually think that generally religion is something sci-fi has handled very badly hmm. because it is weirdly something they just hand wave away. They either don't, they pretend it doesn't exist or they say, oh yeah, it still exists. It's like, well, okay, hang on, how? Um, or it's the core of the entire plot. Yeah. yeah. Whereas I liked Babylon 5 in that I understand... So what does Christianity look like once you're in the stars? And we get an answer to this. And, that, that was quite true. And are there people who go around thinking, well, there's got to be a truth to everyone, otherwise it's impossible for all the aliens to be saved? And there are groups like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I like the fact that Babylon 5 manages to make religion and belief part of how its universe works, right down to... So there's the episode where they're um, holding Shabbos for Ivanova's father. And I'm like, okay, how are you meant to hold a nighttime vigil on a space station? Yeah. The, the, the Jewish day starts at sunset, and there isn't one on a space station. I was a bit confused by that. But then later, there's the Narn festival, where they're meant to do a ritual in front of the first rays of light of a star coming over a mountain. Mm-hmm. And they actually calculate it to the light going from that star and reaching the space station all these light years away. Yeah, because he's late or something. Yes. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, but equally, it does get tongue-in-cheek at time over exactly the same religion with the convention of the Church of Elvis on the station. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and the Drazi Democratic Religious Festival, which no one could understand. The, which was possibly my favourite episode. The, of the purple and green. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is quite a... It seems to do a fair amount of uh, pay a fair amount of respect while also playing that in a bigger context, mm-hmm. right? I mean, all of a sudden, like you know, when Kosh, sorry, when Kosh comes out of his encounter suit, all of a sudden he's always the thing from your legend, right? The thing from your myth, um, you know. So it does play that. So to start the immediate fan theory argument, why doesn't spoiler everyone? Why doesn't Malari see Kosh? Why can't he see Bolans? It's because he doesn't believe anything, right? That's what I thought. Uh, other people are like, oh, he, he's damned. I don't think damnation actually exists in this. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I, I always understood it as he's so, like, especially in the first season where he's basically doesn't have any, or the first couple of seasons where he basically doesn't have any principles. He's a space he, nihilist. Yeah, I was going to go with space David Cameron, but <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> 
I mean, I, yeah, I, I just assumed it was because he couldn't, didn't believe in anything. Well, I don't know if you want to go so far as to use a term like damned, but he is at that point, what, the end of the second series? Under, under the greatest amount of influence yeah. of the shadow, so I would say that, that might have an impact on him interacting with the Vorlons. Yeah, well, I mean, the, but, I mean, it's not necessarily, but it couldn't be that he was damned, because if he was damned, then he would have to understand that there was something. Yeah. Opposite, right? Like the, the other know, option, it's, it's, it's it's quite manichaean. Like the other option is that the um, the bulldogs just never visited Centauri Prime. <laughs> so they have nothing to see, right? They don't have an angel. Yeah, <laughs> I mean the silly place. Yeah, I mean, and, and you get glimpses of. I mean, it's always quite it's quite strange when these things escalate, right? Like the 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 escalation with the ball on the shadow, you know, is, is done quite well, but then they're like, oh, but there's older older ones. Yeah, and um, and the, we're talking about good design spaceships. The old one's weird mask from Crash Bandicoot. Yeah, um, no, I like that has <laughs> glowing lights well, around the, it. The, the, <laughs> these really are even in, even in season one. There's the bit where Sinclair's wife finds the thing that shuts her spaceship down, and Jacquard knows it's going to happen, and he sends a rescue party. Yeah, yeah. It's like, even that, I liked the fact that the designer spaceships that the uh, ancient ones have are so utterly incomprehensible. It's like, where's the front? Where's the back? Yeah. Does it have engines? Yeah, I, I don't know. Like, is it the Drew? Drew? Is, is that the one that Ivanova goes and talks to with the big flashy lights that gets annoyed when she mentions the, the big angry face and all those things? Your cowards. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I thought that was a bit weird because there was lots of like Christmas lights on it and stuff. <laughs> it, was, it was very close like, encounters. Yeah, yeah. So, one thing we noticed was that basically every one of the main cast, in terms of acting, hits a home run. They're all really good. And yet, oddly, we've not really seen these actors in too much of a television, at least not in the UK. Um, we're not sure if they were more famous in America. I mean, you said that the guy played Garibaldi. Uh, Gar- Garibaldi, uh, after this, became a libertarian-orientated radio DJ. Uh, had some quite strange and somewhat distressing political views. Yeah, I, I, I mean... I mean, Gary Cole went on to be in West Wing after Crusade. I mean, there's a few there's people that Peter Jurisic was in a few things. Yeah. Like, was he not also in... What's the horror thing? Or the kind of gothic? American gothic? No, no. no that was like Gary Cole again. But, I mean... <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean... I can I can tell you about the actors at all to be honest. Apart from the libertarian shock shock. Yeah. Bill Mummy, of course, was in the original Lost in Space. Yes. And I suppose Who does he play? He's Will Robinson, isn't he? No, in Vampire. Oh, Linear. Linear, okay. Yeah, it, it's it's kind of odd that um well, so maybe this is standard for sci fi, right? Because you can't always point to people who are in Deep Space Nine or Voyager and say where else they've been. It's quite a lot of characters. Yeah. I, I mean, I think what I'm more interested in, in talking about is do you think it would be possible to make this now? Do you think it's... Because in some ways I was thinking about this and I was thinking, well, actually it might be more possible because Netflix allows you to do that kind oh, of heavy, yes. heavy, heavy drop stuff. Um, but whether people would... I mean... 
But in some ways, you would end up with a version of the show that is 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 the prophecy heavy version. Yes, because you couldn't have the twenty episode seasons that fill out the world so much. I also think you'd end up there's a greater awareness of references that are on the nose now. Mm. So there's. It's very obvious that so the Narn of the oppressed and the Centauri of the oppressor, and at various times they both manifest different tropes of different historical groups. And I think if you made it now, there'd be this deep, constant awareness of how much how much like the Palestinians do the Narn look today, yeah. how much like the British Empire does the Centauri look today, or the Prussians or the Russians. Or I think they'd struggle to be as the word isn't carefree, but the original series isn't worried about being on the nose or making a direct reference, and I think that's good. Yeah, I mean, it's difficult to play things straight now, right? Yeah. With Everything's the, very meta these days. Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe we're just all too ironic for our own good. Yeah, the 1990s was a simpler time. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I don't know. I, I think it... I don't know whether it's because it's one of the few science fiction series that I have watched all the way through I, I mean it's it's certainly I, I'd say it's probably my favourite it's certainly the longest one I've watched all the way through it's pretty easy to watch Firefly all the way through <laughs> <laughs> yeah okay but like the long term you know the Star yeah. Treks and stuff I mean you know Deep Space Nine comes fairly close I haven't watched all of that I don't think um, I, I don't know I have a thing I, I don't often finish TV series so maybe this isn't a great line of thinking I, d- I didn't finish any about uh, Battlestar Galactica. Yeah. I guess our takeaway then is: Would you recommend that someone sits down and watches all five seasons of this? I'd recommend that students who don't have much to do. Well, I mean, it's not something you can put in a reading list, right? No, it isn't. And but th- I mean, this is precisely the problem we have with the podcast, right? right. It, you know, putting it together, I, we had to find someone that had already watched it. Babylon Five. <laughs> um, so. So you can't, no. I mean, but at the same time, if, if you have the time to watch it... It's worth the investment. It's worth the investment. Yeah. Right, I mean, you know, when, when, I was, when I was trying to watch through episodes over Christmas and, and, you know, I watch and I have time to watch, as in I am alone, because Lydia's not going to watch it with me, so, you know, I'm, I'm... The amount of time I spend alone at home with time to watch TV is one to two hours in the evening before I make dinner. But there's so few uh, sci-fi series which you can actually watch all the way through and think that the quality is is well-maintained. It's it's Mm. like if you were to say Stargate SG-1, you could probably watch Stargate SG-1 and miss out the whole of the first series bar the last couple of episodes and, depending on your opinion on Ben Browder, the last two series. With Babylon 5, you can probably miss out quite a lot of season one. I, I know it's going to cause, and you, you can. I think I was much happier without season five because season four is, is certainly a good conclusion. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the one thing it does stand for, though, I mean, you know, and you know, Saint JMS or whatever, but I mean, ambition, right? Yeah. Like, and okay, he's had to, he's had to make compromises on that, and it was made in the nineties, so you know. Compromise on budget, but not in terms of content. Uh, but I mean, I, I think even when it fails, it's obvious when it fails because the idea is so good. Yeah. Um, so 
I don't know if that's my last word on Babylon 5. I can, I can not spend any more evenings watching it. But, um, but I, 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 was, I was surprised by how well it stood up, and it, it certainly fits into that kind of canon of large-scale science fiction that, um, that I'm so, I'm so, so fond of. 25 years on, still worth watching. Uh, if I'm going to have one concluding thought, is that uh, Sinclair was a terrible actor. Uh, he's a better captain than Sheridan and I think we'll leave it on that controversial note Uh, the last thing we'd like to do is I'd like to give a shout out to our listeners in Saudi Arabia and the Philippines again we're not sure why but apparently we have a few listeners there so thanks guys bye bye